Well, good morning, church. My own? Okay, good. Y'all can hear me. Okay, good. Sounded weird to me. That's just me, though. Y'all glad to be in church this morning? Good, good. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you to everybody who is watching online. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. I knew this morning it was a little rainy. I was a little tired. And so I got up early and I got here this morning and I went back there to the fridge and I noticed they had three gallons of tea. And so I drank some of one, probably too many, so I can feel my heart is like this. But I've got a lot to say this morning, so if it's all the same to you guys, if I seem a little jittery, if I seem like I'm talking too fast or I get going a little bit too much, somebody's just going to need to look at me and be like, hey, yo, Tim, slow down a little bit, okay? You good? Uh, because I do have so much to say, let's get going. You ready, church? We're on part four of a series entitled Get Better, where we are spending time getting better at the most important thing, the most rewarding thing in this life. Uh, if you're just joining us, you may not know this yet. You may not believe it, but here is the truth. God desires a relationship with you, right, church? God wants to have a relationship with you, each and every one, one of you. He wants to be close with you. He wants to spend time with you. This is why Jesus Christ told us, and we read in Scripture, he says, the most important thing you can do in this life is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. And if you can manage to do that in your life, if you can manage to put God first, to prioritize your relationship with him, to walk with him daily, you will discover that so much of the other things that you desire to have in life will be given to you through the gracious, powerful hands of God. Right, church? See, I'm going to get y'all going too. If we need to break out the tea, we'll do it, okay? Listen, much like improving at anything in life, we are breaking down the areas where we can improve in our relationship with God by analyzing the life of a man named Peter whose journey and relationship with Jesus Christ is unfurled for us in the Gospels. Y'all know this? Everybody remember this? We're talking about pre Peter. And we are improving our relationship with God by learning the lessons that Peter learned in his walk with Christ. So here's what we learned so far. Y'all ready for the recap? To start with, we started with starting. That's a lot of starts, right? First thing we said is we wanted to get better at starting. We do this by knowing who we are. We have to have a healthy, humble view of ourselves, which is we are sinners. But that gives us a big, glorious view of who God is. He is great, right? And as much as it's important to know who we are and to see our sinfulness, we also get to see who we could be. Do y'all remember that? We submit ourselves to the idea that God has a plan, that God has a purpose in our life, and he is going to mold us and change us in our relationship with him. I want to tell you something. You've got to head out in this relationship with God knowing that part of what's going to happen is he's going to change you. He's going to change you. Next, we discovered that we needed to get better at committing. This is what we discovered, that we should, as we head out into this relationship with God, we should expect resistance and resistance is going to come in the form of distractions and problems and temptations there is a force out there that we have to understand we must combat whose sole purpose is to upend and drown our attempts to walk with christ there's something out there that wants to keep you from having a good relationship with God. And so I'm telling you, you got to head out of this thing expecting resistance, preparing for any resistance, and being willing to fight whatever challenges may 
come your way. Everybody with me still? Last week, we got honest about one of uh, the frustrations that inevitably occurs in our relationship with God. We even acknowledged our frustration to him. Do y'all remember that? We looked up and we said, God, sometimes you frustrate me. More specifically, God, sometimes I am frustrated at your timing. Anybody ever get frustrated with God's timing? Raise your hand real quick. Okay, good. All of us. Glad we can own that. However, as much as we may all get frustrated, we recognize that if we want our relationship with God to prosper, we better get better at waiting. Get better at waiting. To do this, we must see these periods of waiting for what they are. We must embrace the cliffhangers in life, right, Rhonda? That's what we call them. These these periods of waiting, we call them cliffhangers. These periods of waiting, these pauses, I'm telling you, are so often right before God is going to bring something really good into your life. A much-needed change, something new into your life. As long as there is air in our lungs, there is more to our story, there is more to come, and he's going to bring good out of it. We must just have faith. That's what he told Jairus, right? We must just have faith that God is still here. He's still here. He's still working. His plan is still developing, and we must embrace the cliffhangers. Everybody caught up? That was a little quicker recap, right? I got through it. I have to get quicker every week, you know, because we're adding to it. Anyway, today I want to talk about something, though, that's, that's really important. This isn't merely a frustration. It's not. Uh, what I'm going to talk about today, I'm going to tell you in your relationship with God, this isn't just an inconvenience. This isn't a, a, a disappointing or sad time of waiting in your life. The thing that we're going to talk about getting better at today, I want to tell you this. It'll hurt you. It'll hurt your relationship with God. It'll halt your journey with Him. It's so painful. It's so life-altering. I got to be honest with you. It's it's relationship-damaging is what it is. Never addressing what we're going to talk about today. Never, never, I'm talking about you addressing it, not me addressing it. We're going to address it, okay? Everybody good with that? We're going to address it. But I'm talking about you addressing it. If you never address this in your life, if you never take a good, hard look at yourself, I want to tell you, it'll keep you from moving forward in your relationship with God. You can't expect to keep growing in your relationship with God, loving, honoring, obeying, serving Him, following Him, unless you are getting better at this. Do you want to know what it is? Get better at forgiving now don't this sound like fun get better at forgiving one of my favorite movies of all times is lonesome dove thank you thank you brother that's all it took huh all it took in this church was to say lonesome dove and we finally get an amen in here that's not bill uh anyway Lonesome Dove, man. It's one of my favorite movies. Me and Ronnie Hodge, I'm telling you, we love this movie. I've watched it so many times, it would be embarrassing to know how many hours I have spent watching Lonesome Dove. If you've never seen it, you should, Leslie. That's, a, that's sad to see you do that. Leslie went, I've never seen it. Have you ever seen it? No, I've never seen it. I'm like, come on, guys. So, Lonesome Dove centers around two men. Uh, Texas Rangers in the Old West, and uh, Woodrow Call and Augustus McRae. 
And at a ripe old age, these two men decide that it is time for another adventure. They're going to uh, get cattle, travel with these cattle from southern Texas all the way to Montana to start the first cattle ranch ever in Montana. And I'm telling you, it makes for a treacherous, epic odyssey of a journey. I mean, it is. It's, it's a long, it's like a miniseries of movies, like four, four, it broke up into four parts. And it is amazing. So you should watch it. But what, what I thought about a lot this week is right as these two best friends, these two men that have been together all of their lives, basically, right as they're almost about to make it into Montana, Gus has a run-in with some Native Americans who look to them as if they're threats. They get into a fight, and Gus is wounded in the legs. He takes some arrows to his legs. It takes some time before he makes it to the doctor. And he is suffering from a condition they talk about in the movie as blood poisoning. That's what they call it. He's got the blood poisoning. What it really means is there's an infection that is set up in his legs to the point where something drastic has to be done. And without Gus's permission, the doctor, Sawbones, amputates one of his legs. And when Woodrow Call, his best friend, arrives, he gets there, and the doctor gives him some news. I've got to take off that other leg, too, if he's got any chance of making it. Well, for Woodrow Call, this is an easy, easy decision, right? Cut it off. Save my friend. Do what we got to do whatever it takes so that we continue on this journey, right? But Gus... He wasn't having it. As a matter of fact, what what transpires is a conversation between Gus and Woodrow where he says, my pride won't allow it. That's actually what he says. My pride won't allow it. You can't take my leg. What follows is a tearjerker of a scene, okay? I'm a, you know, I'm a big tough guy. Watch a big tough western. I'm going, (laughs) okay. As these two men who've been friends for their whole life accept that their journey is ending. That movie scene came to mind recently because I can't tell you how many people I've witnessed make a similar decision in their relationship with God. I've witnessed a lot of people, good, godly people, allow something that is infected and something that is rotten hang on inside of them. To their own detriment. I've seen it. I've seen it with God standing there saying, let's just cut it out. Knowing that that's what they've got going on. Knowing that God is sitting there looking at them saying, let's just cut it out. Let's just deal with it. And they refuse. They know that the poison is killing them. They can feel it. They know that it shouldn't be there. They know the infected area of their life has got to go if there's any hopes of continuing on the journey, but they just can't do it. And for many, I'll be honest with you, their pride won't allow it. What is this infection that poisons our lives? What is this infection that robs us in so many ways in our relationship with God? It's called unforgiveness. It's called unforgiveness. A failure to forgive. This one is hard, I know. Y'all with me this morning? 
In your relationship with God, there is this foundational idea of forgiveness. Many of you have experienced it. We are forgiven, right, Scott? And we're asked repeatedly to forgive. You are saved through forgiveness. You are redeemed by it. And you are supposed to be freed by this idea of forgiveness that Jesus shows us. If you want to get better at your relationship with God, you have to understand you cannot continue on with a poison like unforgiveness living inside of you, spreading and infecting all areas of your life. So we're going to talk about it today a little bit. Y'all good with that? We're going to talk about it because some of you know immediately you need to talk about this. Some of you know, and you're like, yes, let's do that. Some of you, you're like Gus. And I think I could stand up here all day telling you how much you need to do it. And you would say, can't do it, boss. You know it's hurting your relationship with God. You know it's holding you back in life. But you just can't. I'm going to ask you to do me a favor, even if that's who you are, even if that's where you're at in your life. Let's talk about it anyway. Just hear me out. You can still do whatever you want to do. You can still walk out of here carrying it the rest of your life if that's what you want to do, because it's really up to you. But just sit here and hear it anyway. If you want to, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. And let's see if we can get better at forgiving. When we hear the word forgive in the Bible, the first thing I think we have to do is, is Matthew chapter 18. I'll say it one more time. It, 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 when we hear the word forgive in the Bible, I want to make sure that we understand exactly what we're, what we're being told. Okay? What we're being asked to do. Uh, the, the Greek word for forgive is aphiomi. Say that to me, church. Aphiomi. This is what aphiomi means. It literally means to let loose of. That is, the, that, is, that is what forgive means in the Bible. That's what the word that is translated out means. It means to let loose of. To let loose of the wrong that has been done to you. I want you to notice a few things. Notice that the word aphiomi is about what you do. It's about what you do in your heart and how that translates into actions in your life. I feel me, forgiveness is about the choice that you have to release people from the hard feelings that you have. It's about the choice that you have to release people from your wrath or your expectations of their penance or the justice you feel you deserve. Are y'all with me still? I feel me. It means that you no longer hold anything against this person who has wronged you. You expect no repentance. You expect no reciprocity. You expect no right action. You've let loose of it. Think about that. Your forgiveness is not contingent on their repentance. Now that's tough. Okay, is that just hard for me? That's tough, right? Forgiveness has nothing to do with what they do, and it has everything to do with what you choose to do. Everybody with me? That's what it means. I fear me to let loose of. I want to clarify this. It does not mean that you have to subject yourself to someone who continues to mean you harm or is dangerous. Listen to me. Someone who has hurt you 
and you placing distance between you and them, that is not unforgiveness as long as you are honest and truthful about where your heart is. Everybody with me? Someone who still means you ill will doesn't mean that you have to subject yourself to their presence and their uh, authority or whatever in your life anymore. Okay? You can still forgive and create distance there. Is that okay? Everybody with me? Okay. Now, when we hear forgiveness and, and in church, when we start talking about forgiveness, I know what we do. I know what every one of us do. We begin thinking in our minds, categorizing and measuring how uh, good at forgiving we are, right? That's what we immediately start doing. So we begin to assess and with ease the things that we've forgiven, right? So we go, well, I forgave so-and-so for that. You know, and I forgave this person and I forgave that person. We also think of the things that we would forgive. We all have a list of things like, I would forgive them for that and I would forgive them for this. And, you know, if that ever happened to me, I would forgive them. You know what I mean? But at the same time, we also assess the things that we haven't forgiven. Something comes up in our mind. Probably someone comes up in our mind. And we know, I haven't haven't forgiven them. We also can make a list of the things that we wouldn't forgive. Right, Nick? How quick can we make a list? Well, I'll tell you what, if this happened to me, there is no way that I'm ever going to forgive them. That's unforgivable. Just as easily, we can make a map in our mind of how forgiving we are. Listen to me. People in biblical times, they were no different. They were just people trying to figure this thing out. As a matter of fact, forgiveness was taught uh, in biblical times with calculable uh, expectations. The Pharisees, during Jesus' times and for generations, had referenced scriptures from the book of Amos and Job to imply that when one is wronged by someone, uh, they were only expected to forgive three times. Now that sounds pretty good, don't it, y'all? I mean, I feel like that's better than what we teach now, you know? You get three strikes, you out. You wrong me a four time, man, I ain't got to forgive you for nothing. I can just hate you forever. Sorry, Matt. You know what I'm saying? That sounds pretty good. That's what they taught. Forgiven for three times. Well, as you can imagine, as we're going towards Matthew 18 finally. Sorry, we're getting Matthew 18. As you can imagine, our boy Peter, he knows the rules. This is what he's been taught his whole life. So he's heard that this idea of three times uh, you should be forgiven. But I want to tell you something. Peter also knows Jesus. And he knows how loving and kind and how generous Jesus is. So one day, Peter goes over to Jesus and he asks Jesus about forgiveness, which I will always believe is a loaded question. I think, I, I want to be honest with you. I think if, if, you, if somebody ever comes to me and they ask me some sort of question about forgiveness, you know what I can guarantee? They got something going on inside of them that they know don't feel right. It feels a little poisonous. It feels a little ugly. And so they're asking me to find out what kind of parameters they have to live under because they really want to obey God, but they just want to see how much unforgiveness they can get away with you know what i'm saying like what is what are the parameters what do i have to forgive and that is exactly the way i believe jesus was going uh, i mean peter was going to jesus with so in peter's question this is what he said i think he seeks to be like jesus matthew chapter 18 verse 21 he says then peter came to him and asked lord how often should i forgive someone who sins against sins against me seven times what is he doing 
He's being generous, right? The Pharisees teach three. Peter's like, Jesus got to want more than that because I just know him. I know how he is. And so he's like, seven. It may be that, that Peter chose the number seven because in the Bible, in Scripture, we see that seven is significant of a completed work. And so I believe Peter was going, hey, you know, if I've forgiven seven times and they wrong me eight, at least I've done my part to forgive them those seven times, then I can just not forgive them the eighth time, right? But Jesus responds quickly and directly. This is what he says. No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. I know what you're doing. You're going, carry the one, carry the one, it's this. And it's, I know what you're doing. But here's the truth. Jesus' astonishing response is that Peter must forgive not the magnanimous number of seven, but countless times. The phrasing that Jesus used here, 70 times seven, it speaks to a verse from Genesis chapter four, verse 24, where, where God is describing something as infinite. God is describing something as infinite, and he uses the phrase 70 times seven. Isn't it just like Jesus to throw some scripture up in your face? He says, no, 70 times 7. He's, you know what he's saying? Infinitely. In essence, Jesus seems to be saying here that the number doesn't matter. He expresses it further if you continue to read in Matthew 18, which I'm not going to go into this morning, as he lays out the expectation for forgiveness in a parable, in parable form. And this is basically what he says. Our forgiveness for one another should mirror the forgiveness that God has shown us. That's the standard that we're supposed to be striving for. To put it plainly, this is what he's saying. Peter and the rest of the disciples are to continue to forgive without keeping count. The count doesn't matter anymore. Jesus tells Peter, you should go on forgiving out of the reality of your own forgiveness as was demonstrated in the way God forgave you. I want you to go forgive the way you've been forgiven. This is a revolution. Y'all with me? This is a revolutionary instruction from Jesus. I mean, this was, this was crazy. It countered religion. I'm telling you, it countered common sense. It countered what seems fair and reasonable. I mean, it doesn't seem fair, does it? Okay, just to me again. Amazing how that works in church. Just to me, it just doesn't seem fair. We're supposed to forgive everyone all the time. There is no count. There is no number. There is no category that we can log as unforgivable. That's hard for me, Leslie. As crazy and ridiculous as it seems, Jesus stresses the idea of forgiveness as us letting loose of these wrongs. He stresses this to his disciples for a reason. This is where it matters. Everybody here. Is where he stresses this to them for a reason. Can I show you why? Jesus has been hauled away in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus has been hauled away, arrested, and he isn't, and he isn't long in his story before the cross. Okay? The disciples are scattered. They're unnerved. They're confused. And Peter, we're told, was following at a distance. He was watching from afar as this mob took Jesus in. They were calling for Jesus' arrest. They were eventually going to be calling for his crucifixion. And all of a sudden, Peter began to be recognized as one of Jesus' guys, as one of his disciples. He was called out in public as being a Jesus follower. And this is what we're told in the Bible, that Peter denied knowing him. 
Now, this is a guy who just hours before said he was going to follow Jesus all the way to certain death. He's asked for the first time, hey, aren't you one of Jesus' guys? And this is what Peter said, I don't know him. Just came out of him, just lurched out of him. I don't know who he is. A second time, someone called him out, Peter, and, and Peter says, I've never, I've never even met the guy. A third time, as, as Peter was there, you would think he would have ran by this point, but a third time, a group of people came up pointing at Peter saying, surely you're one of his disciples. And this is what it says. It says, Peter called down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. And as soon as those words came out of his mouth, Peter remembered that Jesus had warned him that he was going to do this very thing. Peter realized that his fear had caused him to completely turn his back on the one he claimed that he would follow to death. He realized that he had sinned against him. He had denied Christ. I mean, the worst possible thing. We're told in the scripture that Peter went into hiding, weeping bitterly, thinking only of his own failure and his own sin. And of course, you know the story. While Peter was hiding, Jesus was murdered. He was crucified. He was buried. And then three days later, we're told that, that Jesus was raised from the dead. He was resurrected. Now, we understand in, in John 21, we understand that, that after Jesus' resurrection, that he appeared to the disciples a few different times. But here's the crazy part of those stories. Nothing about Peter. And there's plenty of evidence to suggest that Peter was in the room, that he was nearby when Jesus made these appearances to his disciples. And we see Jesus talk to some of the other disciples, but Peter is nowhere to be found in the Scripture. Now, I have a theory on that. I think Peter was feeling guilty. I think Peter was hanging back, very unlike Peter, the guy that jumped over the side of the boat. He's hanging back. But then in John 21, Peter was back doing what he knew. He was fishing. And he was having exactly the same kind of luck that he had in message one of this series. They caught nothing. They hadn't caught a fish. Peter's back to just his work. He's back to doing his thing. He's fishing. They've caught no fish. And all of a sudden, a man on shore instructed them to cast their nets on the right side of the boat. Does that sound familiar, church? They threw their nets on the right side of the boat. They caught a huge number of fish, and it was in that moment that, that Peter knew it was the Lord. Peter knew it was, a, it was Jesus in his resurrected form. And we're told that Peter jumped over the side of the boat. He swam, trudged, got over there to the shore to Jesus. And when he got there, Jesus was already cooking some fish. And Jesus looked at Peter, and they got his fish, and they began to cook and just hang out together, and it was there they had a conversation. And Jesus and Peter finally speak to one another. I want to read it to you, okay? John 21, verse 15 is what it says. It says, after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Talking about the other disciples. Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. You know what? You know what Peter, uh, Jesus is saying to Peter right here? Okay, if you love me, then let's move on. Let's go do what you were called to do. When I said I was going to make you a fisher of men, let's move on. Let's do that. Let's go. Let's let you go do 
feed my sheep, help people, teach people about me. Verse 16, though, this is weird. It says, Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. Then take care of my sheep. Then let's move on. You love me. Verse 17, even crazier. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked. You know why I think he says he was hurt? I think Peter knew what was happening. It struck him what Jesus was doing. That's the third time he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. All right, y'all dug in, right, church? You dug in, you hear. Listen to me. This is, we're going to get deep for just a second. What do you notice in this? Jesus asked Peter a question three times, right? I believe that Jesus asked Peter this question three times in order to assure Peter, I forgive you for all three times you denied me. So let's get back to the work I called you to. I assure you this, this number was not lost on Peter. Three expressions of forgiveness for three denials. It wasn't lost on him. But here's what's most important for us today. You want to get better at forgiving, you got you to pay attention right here. This is what Jesus recognized about Peter. He knew that Peter was a counter. He knew Peter was a counter. He knew from their, that conversation, from the, the three and a half years they've been together, he knew Peter is a counter. He keeps count of things. He keeps count of wrongs. Not just the wrongs of others, but even his own. And that is the truth about unforgiveness, church. That's the truth about it. When we decide to be counters of wrongs, to measure, to weigh, to compare, I want to tell you what it does. It infects us. When we keep count of others' wrongs, I'll tell you, it, it forces us to bring out our own and we compare. They did this and they did that. And you're comparing them to who you are and, and, and all these things about yourself. And I want to tell you, you keep count of all of it. And it, you hold on to all of it and it infects you. Our unforgiveness causes us to hold on to their wrongs and our own. We keep, track, we keep track of it all. And ours may be quiet. Ours may be very secret, but we count it all. And it poisons our life. And it stops us from moving forward with God. If you count the wrongs of others, if you measure, weigh, calculate them, whatever, in order, in trying to determine what the unforgivable value is for you, inevitably, I believe this, you will keep track of your own transgressions as well. Are y'all with me? Just like Peter. When we go about this life refusing to let loose of the wrongs of others, the number, the magnitude, the measure, however it is, how often or how bad we've been hurt and who did it, it binds itself up in us. And whether we like it or not, we make all these comparisons. The ugly of others versus our ugly. Their hurtful, selfish acts versus our hurtful, selfish acts. And it causes us to get swept up in a life of unforgiveness. That's why we call it poison. When we keep these counts and we refuse to forgive, I'm going to tell you something, and it takes root in your heart. It's just in you. And it becomes how you look at the world. 
It becomes how you receive every person in your world. Every action that is done to you is perceived through this lens of unforgiveness that you have for them and yourself. Does this preach, y'all? That unforgiveness becomes how we process everything. And it infiltrates every area of our life. It will remind you constantly of that hurt from long ago. And it will also remind you of your own failures. That's what it does. You find yourself thinking about all the people that you've done wrong and all the people who have done you wrong. And you, you wonder what you deserve. And you value yourself based on how you've been wronged and how you've wronged others. That's the truth about unforgiveness. We've all been wronged, right? Raise your hand real quick if you've been wronged. Okay. Now raise your hand if you've wronged somebody else. Many of us choose to break out the balance sheet often. Recounting the wrongs we've experienced and the wrongs that we've done. That's why unforgiveness is so, po- so much such a poison. That's why forgiveness is so important. Our inability to forgive others curses us to carry the awful burden of our sin and theirs. We find ourselves constantly checking the statement every time feelings rise up. This is what they did. This is how they did it. This is blah, 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 blah. Would you like to get better at forgiving? Would you like to get that stuff out of you? Let me tell you what I would do then. I would start learning how to close the accounts. Close the accounts. In your life, it is time that you really begin to assess and figure out how to let loose of what has been done to you. It's just as important as you learning how to let loose of what you've done. You have to close the accounts. Relinquishing the urge in your life every day to keep score and release others from the debt they owe you. I'm telling you, by closing the accounts of past wrongs, you free yourselves from the burden of unforgiveness. And you open the door to healing and forward movement in your relationship with God. And that is something you have to decide to do every day. When you see yourself hanging on to things. Wanting retribution. Wanting repentance. Wanting right action back to you. Wanting justice. Feeling like it's up to you to hold that. I want to tell you something. You've got to just let that go. The truth is, when you forgive you hand it all to him. Just like you handed your sin to him, you hand theirs to him, too. You didn't think you had that kind of power, but you do. There is nothing more important in your relationship with God than this. For me. Early in my walk, I can't even talk about it, okay? So, 
early in my walk, I had a lot of hate in me. I did. Not like dislike, y'all. Hate. When I realized that what Jesus wanted from me was for me to let loose of those things, I want to tell you, it freed me like nothing else ever has. I still am learning to do it. I'm still in trying to do it in a lot of different ways and a lot of different things. And some, sometimes new things happen that I have to figure out how to do it again. But the truth is, I don't want any accounts. I don't want to hold on to my own account. I want him to have it. And I tell you, I definitely don't want to hold on to somebody else's. I want him to have it as well. Forgiveness is key. You want to move forward in your relationship with God in 2024? Good grief. Start learning how to forgive better. Start closing the accounts. You'll be closer with him than you've ever been. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for each and every person that is here. Um, I know this. I don't know how they've been wronged. I don't know the hurt that some people carry. I wouldn't even venture to, to guess what it is they face or what it is that they're carrying with them. But I know this. Every day they hold on to it. Every day they think about it. Every day they add it up. It robs them. It robs them of knowing you. It robs them of, of going forward in their relationship with you the way that they could. Experiencing the goodness and the, and the mercy and the freedom that comes from just being free of that junk. And understanding that none of it is their responsibility. We should forgive with the same measure that you've forgiven us. And God, I pray that you will teach us how to do that. That's not something we can do in a day. That's not something we can do in a week or in years. But I'll tell you what we can start doing. Every time an account pops up in our mind, we can begin to pray and try to hand it to you. We can begin to relinquish that and say, you know what I want, God? I want to let loose of this. I want loose of it. I want you to own it. I want you to be in charge of what happens there. I want, I want you to carry that burden. Not me. And God, I pray that you will help us do that. With every prayer, with every plead, help us let loose and help us forgive where it's necessary. And God, at the end of it, may we all experience a strong, lasting, flourishing relationship with you. In Jesus' name, everybody says, Amen. Church, I love you. I hope you have a great day, and I'll see you next Sunday. Bye-bye.